The president, Monsieur Zola, requests that he be allowed to speak. Permission granted. Gentlemen, my profession is writing, not talking. But from my struggling youth until today, my principal aim has been to strive for truth. That is why I entered this fight. All my friends have told me that it was insane for a single person to oppose the immense machinery of the law, the glory of the army, and the power of the state. They warned me that my actions would be mercilessly crushed, that I would be destroyed. But what does it matter if an individual is shattered, if only justice is resurrected? Hello and welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. We close out the 19th century today and the second quarter of this project with our third straight biopic. Though each has been unique in its own way, and I guess it depends on how you define biopic. The miracle worker looked at probably less than a month of Helen Keller's life, and she's not even the title character. We got a more complete view on Van Gogh in Loving Vincent, though it was all told in flashback after his death. The Life of Emil Zola is a little more traditional life story, as its title would imply, though really only for the first quarter of the film. After that, it focuses on one key event of which Zola was part. Right at the beginning, the opening text reminds us that while this is based on real people and events, it is a work of fiction and should be viewed as such. And while it does, of course, take creative license, I don't think it's any less accurate than any films that straight up say the following is a true story. It definitely simplifies some things, especially as the first 30 minutes cover about 30 years. We open in 1862 in Paris, so at the same time the Civil War is underway in the United States. Two young men are living the starving artist life in a small drafty apartment. They are Paul Cezanne, who will later become a famous painter, and Emile Zola, a writer and the hero of our tale. The two men are idealistic and want to create for the sake of truth. In fact, exposing the truth is what Zola devotes his entire career to. His mother and girlfriend have arranged a job for him with a local publisher. It doesn't last long, however. The police show up to warn Emile to be careful about what topics he writes about. His boss expects him to toe the line as well and fires him when Emile insists he will not be censored. Over the years, Emile gains a reputation for exposing corruption and discussing topics that most people would rather not talk about. A huge hit that they highlight in the film is a novel about a prostitute based on a woman he meets and takes pity on. Emile has gone from a pauper to a wealthy man, writing book after book about real life. Nothing sensationalized, he just calls him like he sees him. He gets called before the government censor after writing a novel critical of the French military and government during their losses in the Franco-Prussian War two decades earlier. I suppose most of this all seems about right. They just move things around. This specific book was published in 1892, but the movie makes it seem it was much earlier in his career. Also, he didn't meet his wife until 1865, even though we saw her as his girlfriend in 1862. And just because it won't matter later, I'll get it out of the way now. The film completely ignores Emile's longtime affair with his wife's seamstress that resulted in two children. He and his wife had no children together. The movie chooses to have his wife as his proud, constant supporter, 
and this was a wrench that they didn't want to have to deal with, I suppose. And he's the virtuous hero of our story. His only flaws are vanity and complacency, which he overcomes to save the day, but I'm getting ahead of myself. More than three decades have passed already since we met Emile. His old friend Paul Cezanne comes to visit him and seems disappointed that Emile has forgotten where they started and what their ideals were. He's not quite a sellout as all his work still highlights the truth, but he's definitely a little smug now. Cezanne bids him farewell. He says he has no more interest in Paris anymore. Now, again, all that is basically the first half hour of the film, setting us up for a huge scandal in France that occurred at the end of the century. It's 1894. A Count Esterhazy writes a letter giving French intelligence to the Germans. It is intercepted by French authorities at the German embassy, but they don't know who wrote it. After profiling possible suspects, the blame falls on a Captain Alfred Dreyfus. Now, many modern scholars say that the film did a disservice by not dealing with the likely anti-Semitism at play. There was no evidence against Dreyfus, and it appears he was likely scapegoated because he was Jewish. In the film, we know he's innocent from the beginning because we saw Esterhazy write the letter in question. So I was confused when a writing sample they got from Dreyfus is used as the key evidence against him. That does seem to be about all they had on him in reality as well, though no actual handwriting experts were involved. They wanted a guilty party, so they decided it was Dreyfus. He never stopped protesting his innocence. Luckily, he wasn't executed for his supposed treason but sent to a penal colony on Devil's Island off of the coast of French Guiana in South America. A few years pass, and a soldier named Georges Picard approaches military leadership with the good news that he has discovered that the actual traitor was Esterhazy. But to Picard's horror, his superiors don't care. They say the army, and in turn the country, can't bear such an embarrassment. Picard's evidence is suppressed, and he's sent off to Africa where he'll be out of the way. A military court acquits Esterhazy and new evidence against Dreyfus is forged. So in the film, we see Emil Zola in 1898, content with life, as I've said. Dreyfus's wife visits him and begs him to speak the truth on her behalf. She has a pile of papers that constitute Picard's evidence, but no one will listen to her. She says something like, You're the only man in all of France who can make them listen. All your life you fought for truth and justice. Emile tells her it would be foolish to take up her cause. The whole country hates her husband. She leaves, but Emile hears Cezanne's voice in the back of his head and decides to do what's right. The evidence is there. The truth must come out. He calls out the French president in an open letter on the front page of the newspaper entitled J'accuse, which just means I accuse. Now Zola's actual letter called out the anti-Semitism at play but the movie just deals with the obstruction of justice side of things. Now, what Emile knew would happen, happened. He was basically baiting it out. He's charged with criminal libel against the top military brass. Most of the final act of the film is devoted to his trial. It was one of the most infuriating things to watch. The trial was a farce. Public opinion and that of the court itself was so impossibly biased that they would hardly let Zola's defense even question any witnesses. And yes, in February 1898, Emile Zola was convicted of libel. The movie says he was sentenced to a year in prison. I'm not sure if that's right or not, but it doesn't matter because Emile flees France for England to avoid any jail time. Now, here at the end is where the movie alters the historical timeline the most. It leaves out completely the 1899 retrial of Alfred Dreyfus, which convicts him again. 
In the film, the truth comes out when military officers finally confess, one or two doing so in their suicide notes. Dreyfus returns to France and is reinstated into the military, and a little disappointed that Emil wasn't there to see the ceremony. But in reality, Dreyfus wasn't exonerated until four years after Zola's death, which happened in 1902. As we see in the film, from carbon monoxide poisoning from a faulty stove that wasn't ventilating properly. He was just 62 years old. In the 1950s, it was actually posited that Zola's death may have been a murder at the hands of a chimney sweep who blocked his chimney intentionally. I know that sounds crazy, but there seems to have been those who never forgave his meddling in the Dreyfus affair and refused to accept the truth when it came out. There was another incident in 1908 when Zola's remains were moved to be with fellow French authors Victor Hugo and Alexandre Dumas. Dreyfus was at the event and was shot in the arm by a man who had been against him when he was public enemy number one. As I was watching all this and researching the event from over 100 years ago, I couldn't help see the parallels to our current political climate in the United States. I'm writing this in December 2018 and recording it in February 2019, though it won't air until the end of April. But just how passionately people believe what they want to be true, despite what facts or evidence show. Too often we make our minds first and then only listen to sources that corroborate our feelings. I'm guilty of this as well. Anything is possible. And if you're making your mind up ahead of time, you're doing the truth a disservice. Anyway, a figure the movie completely left out was Dreyfus' brother Matthew. He spearheaded the effort to prove his brother's innocence. Zola was one of many people to buy into the idea of a military conspiracy and cover-up, though he was surely the most famous. The Life of Emil Zola won the Oscar for Best Picture of 1937, beating out, incidentally, the original version of A Star is Born. Joseph Schildkraut also won Best Supporting Actor for his portrayal of Alfred Dreyfus. Emil Zola was played by Paul Mooney, a six-time Oscar nominee for lead actor, who had won the year before for the story of Louis Pasteur. Zola's books don't have the notoriety of Hugo or Dumas, but many, if not all, of his books are available on Amazon. His most prominent work seems to be a 20-novel series called Le Regan Macar, about two families in the 1850s and 1860s. He wrote reality-based fiction, often, as we said, critical of the establishment and empathetic to the downtrodden. Before I leave you for another six months, let's wrap up the state of the world at the end of the 19th century. The Romanov family rules the Russian Empire, which reached its geographic height in 1895, controlling all of what the later Soviet Union held, plus Alaska and a little more land into Europe. But the British Empire, as we discussed with Zulu, reigned supreme on the world stage. Cuba gained independence from Spain in 1898, though the U.S. then held sway as the century turned. The Boxer Rebellion in China was underway. Basically, it was the Chinese lashing out at foreign influence and control in their country. Colombia was in the middle of a civil war. And the United States was at war with the Philippines, coming on the heels of the Spanish-American War, which ended in 1898. In fact, it seems the United States, Spain, Cuba, and the Philippines were all politically and militarily intertwined to the point I just can't even get into it all here. It's too complicated. Unless you know of a movie about it I need to watch. In other fields... Radiation is just being discovered and explored. Gramophones and phonographs were becoming all the rage, and we could finally play recorded sounds. The Olympic Games were revived in 1896 in Athens after a 1,500-year hiatus. Though this is the first official Olympiad of the modern games, 
Momentum had been building for some time, and Olympic-like competitions had even been held in the 1600s. I'm constantly making small tweaks to my list of movies here, but the current plan is to start back up on Election Day this November with a Russian classic of the silent era, Battleship Potemkin, about a mutiny that took place in 1905. I'll probably do a little recap of the second quarter of the project too, like I did last year, but as always, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you later.